Uh, out of curiosity, how many of you have ever lived in the Phoenix area? Lived there? Several of you, a couple of you, good. So I'm not alone, you know what I'm talking about, and uh, it is really good uh, to uh, have your support in uh, my ministry in uh, Arizona. I haven't met all of you, I look forward to meeting you, or at least trying to the rest of the day. Uh, about five years ago, we launched uh, there in the Queen Creek, Arizona area, Queen Creek is a, a suburb, a uh, southeast uh, suburb of the Phoenix metro. And uh, for the past five years, God has blessed. I wish my wife was here. Uh, we have four children. We have three a little bit older ones and one nine-month-old. And uh, yeah, you're assuming right. We didn't plan on it, uh, but God knew what he was doing. And so she had to stay back and take care of some of those things, uh, obviously, with the kids. Uh, but she does wish she was here. Uh, she sends her greetings with me. And uh, again, uh, so thrilled to be able to represent our church and our family uh, to you. And thank you. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for supporting uh, missions. Thank you for supporting church planting. Thank you for giving. Thank you for supporting your pastors. Thank you for supporting your church. Uh, It is of the utmost importance for what we're here to do this week as we launch into a week of missions emphasis. And if you're a first-time guest today, come back. Please do not judge this church based on what you see on the stage right now. I guarantee you, you'll be blessed uh, as you do come back and hear the other pastors preach. I grew up in a home with three brothers. There were four boys. Uh, It was every bit as out of control as you can imagine it to be. Uh, If I could spend the rest of the day telling you stories about the things that were broken or the dangerous things that were accomplished, uh, you would probably uh, be uh, enjoying that, I'm sure. There was always a debate. It was this endless debate in a home with four boys. And it's something along the lines of, who's the best? It didn't matter what it was. If my... We, me and my brother, with our family and our kids, were on vacation together not too long ago. And at a kiddie playground, we managed to create an obstacle course. It was just an innocent obstacle course for the kids. But sure enough, me and all three of my brothers in our 30s decided that we could do it faster than our kids and do it faster than each other. And so at 30, 35, 40, 45 years old, we were running through this little jungle gym in an obstacle course. Why? Because we had to prove that we were the best. We were the greatest. Now, the third child is always the greatest. Can I get an amen right there? Good. Okay. So I just want to settle the argument right now. If this goes online, uh, they can't argue with me, but that's just the reality. The passage that was just read to you, a similar argument was taking place. There was a conversation going about which of the commandments is the greatest. These were religious leaders. They were attempting to corner Jesus in order to build a case against him. Their goal was to ask questions that were certain to trip him up and then give them ammunition to use against him on trial. Among them was this lawyer, a Jewish law, not civil law. And he asked Jesus this question about which of the commandments was the greatest. Now, the religious leaders categorized the Old Testament into 248 positive and 365 negative commands. They subdivided these 613 commands as heavy 
or light, ranking them by importance. And this created this ongoing debate about which was the greatest commandment. And so this whole religious uh, um, Judaistic system was now built and they were trying to use it to get Jesus backed into a corner. And Jesus redeems the attacks and from it gives us the greatest lesson of the entire Bible. Jesus answered the question with surgical precision and he redeemed the attack on him and he used it to teach us not just the spirit of missions, but the spirit of the Christian. As we launch into this week of missions, I want to give you what I really do think is the spirit behind why we do what we're doing this week. Behind why we send missionaries, why we support why we are here in this place talking about this topic and sending out these missionaries for this purpose. This is the reason. And so I don't know if you're in the habit of taking notes, but I want to give you a sentence that's a, what I call a big idea that you really, I hope, will remember as a thread throughout the rest of the sermon. And it's simply this. The effectiveness of my mission is motivated by the affections of my heart. The effectiveness, the effectiveness, how effective my mission is. What I'm able to accomplish as a church corporately and as an individual Christian is in a large way determined by the affections of my heart. What we love most will always be that which we are most willing to live for and sacrifice for. What you love most. What you love most is not what you declare that you love. What you and I love most is not what we try to let people think it is that we love. But what we love most is revealed by what we are most willing to live and sacrifice for. Now, the reason why people in the church don't involve themselves in the mission. By the way, I need you to understand that the purpose of the church is so much bigger than just gathering The purpose of the church is so much more than just getting good friends and hanging out in small groups and sitting in a building like this or even building buildings. The purpose of the church is to make disciples amongst all nations so that there will come a day when we are in glory in heaven, standing around the throne from every tongue and every nation, declaring his worth and singing praise to him. That is why we are here. That is the mission. One of the reasons why so many people and so many churches don't involve themselves in the mission is isn't because they don't know about it. You don't have to be a part of a church for very long to be reminded of the reality that the mission of the church is to make disciples. You don't have to uh, be there very long to know that. So it's not because you don't know. We don't not involve ourselves in missions because we don't uh, have the resources. We live in America. We have the resources. It isn't because we don't care. Because I think that if we took a survey and we said do you care if people know jesus i think you would all be in 100 percent agreement absolutely we care i believe though that one of the reasons if not the probably the main reason that people in the church followers of christ don't involve themselves in missions whether it is going or giving or praying is because of a misplaced love it's a misplaced love a love for that which is earthly and that which is selfish is the greatest Hindrance to missions. When our affections are misplaced, our mission 
is hindered. When our affections are in the wrong place, the execution of the God-given mission of the church cannot function fully and powerfully. And so the question then that you naturally should be asking at this point is, what affections motivate mission? If my, the effectiveness of my mission is motivated by the affections of my heart, then what affections should I have that will actually motivate my mission so that we as a church can accomplish what God has called us to accomplish? And that's a great question, and I hope to answer that today with a few mission motivators. I want you to write these down. Mission is motivated when I have a vertical affection. Mission is motivated when I have a vertical affection. Look at verse 37 with me of our passage. So here he is answering the Pharisee, the lawyer, that asked him this question, and he said this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And in Mark, he even adds the word strength. We're not going to get into the debate between whether or not it should be included in this text, but we need to understand that that is there. So many times in my life, and I got to believe that in your life, you served God for one of two reasons. One, you may have served him because you were afraid of him. If I don't, if I don't serve him, he might judge me. He might condemn me. We've got this false view of this Gandalf-like God in heaven ready to zap you with his staff if you don't do exactly what he says for you to do. And and we've created an idea of God that is scary. The other reason some of us might serve God and go on mission is because of what we might get from God in a good way. Well, if I serve God, he might bless me. Therefore, I want to serve him because I want to be blessed. I'd like a new car. I'd like a bigger bank account. I don't want to get sick, so I'm going to serve him because he's going to bless me. And now he's not Gandalf. He's like an ATM machine. I just got to swipe my church going card and he's going to give me whatever I ask for and so I'm going to serve him in that way but the reality is this the most liberating and the most sustainable way to serve the Lord is out of a love for the Lord so living on mission as a person and as a body does not come because I see him as a big scary God or a welfare God but because I just love him for who he is well, who is he? Well, I want you to see this. It says it. I'll give you a couple thoughts about this affection that is vertical. First of all, notice the supreme object of our love. The Lord, our God. The Lord declares him as a sovereign being. The creator of all. Powerful above everything else. He is the Lord. There is no other. And yet he is our God. So here Jesus presents to us a powerful God and yet a personal God. A powerful, personal God. An all-powerful and an individually personal God who says, love me, which is an invitation to have a relationship with him. So this all-powerful, individually personal God doesn't demand your slavery. He desires your love. He desires your affection. It's not a difficult thing to muster up when we understand that the object of this love is the only logical focus, the powerful personal God. In fact, he says, to know God as the Lord my God is to love God. If you know him as the powerful being and the personal being, then the natural logical uh, uh, 
response to that is a love for him because you can't serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24 says. You're either going to serve God or you're going to serve yourself. You're going to love one or hate the other. You're going to have these two opposing gods. And he says, the, the best focus of your love to start is vertical because he is the powerful personal God. And then second about this vertical love is he says that this love should be uh, total devotion. The total devotion of our love. I love it. Mark 12, 30. It's in our text. I'm sorry, Matthew. I'm sorry, Matthew 22, uh, verse 38. This is uh, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And Mark 12, 30 adds all your strength. So to add another layer on the greatest of commandments, Jesus tells us how our love is to look. It's to look like all heart, all soul, all mind, all strength, which is total devotion. Now we can take the time to try to read into these and explain what heart, soul, mind, strength is, but suffice it to say that these nouns stand together to speak of loving God with one's total being. So in essence, what he's saying is this. Listen, love God with everything you are in every possible way. The best way for me to understand this is when I fell in love with Angela. I know you guys don't know Angela that well. You would love her too if you knew her. But I remember, man, when I met her, I was a, I was a sophomore in college. She was a senior in high school. We were only a couple years apart. Even as bad as that might sound, we're only a couple years apart, right? She walked up onto college campus, and I said, like, Adam, remember when he saw Eve? He said, woman, that's woman, which basically was like, that's mine. I was like, Adam, that's mine. I went home that summer, and I told my brother, Nick, I said, I met the girl I'm going to marry. We weren't dating yet. In fact, we barely had a five-minute conversation, and I already knew that's who I'm going to marry. Then she broke up with me a couple times, so I knew that's the one I have to marry. I got to win this. I had three brothers. I'm competitive. I'm going to win this. You're marrying me. Well, I finally convinced her somehow. And everything about me ached in love for her. I put pictures of her. Judge me all you want. I don't care. I'm married. I had pictures of her underneath the bunk bed on top of me. Go ahead. Go ahead. Bring it. I had notes that she sent me that smelled like her, and I sniffed them. Then I was helplessly, hopelessly, desperately, head over heels, drooling in love with this woman. And I ain't exaggerating. And I know it ain't a good word, but I ain't. And it was every piece of my being, my heart, my soul, my mind, My strength, everything was affected by the affection that I had for her. I think that's exactly, and maybe even more so, the kind of love he's calling on you to give towards your God, who is powerful and is personal. And he says, this is the greatest and first commandment. We're going to come back to that. But listen, to claim to obey him and live for him and not love him is inconsistent with reality. When I was 13 years old, a pastor now, he's a pastor. His name is Josh. He's a pastor in Vegas. I first met him when I was 13 at teen camp, and he came up to me. He said, hey, I'm Josh. I said, hey, I'm Andrew. He said, hey, man, you love God? It's like, that's a weird opening question, but sure, I'll, I'll, let's play. I said, yeah. And he said, okay, man, are you saved? 
that was a different story. Everybody says they love God, right? But he said, are you saved? And I said, you know. What hit me there, and I'll never, ever forget it, because two days later I uh, trusted Christ and God saved me because of a question that couldn't make sense in my mind. To claim to love God and not obey him does not add up. You cannot love him and not obey him. So to love him is to obey him. Therefore, when he says, go into all the world, as you go, make disciples of all nations, I cannot claim to do that and not love him, or I claim to love him and not do that. To love him is to live on mission. So as we talk about missions conference, as we talk about the church fulfilling the mission, the foundation of the accomplishing of that mission is a love for God as a powerful, personal being with every bit of who I am putting him first. The effectiveness of my mission is motivated and encouraged and inspired by the affections of my heart. That leads me to number two, which is, If I'm going to have a motivation to mission, mission is motivated when I have a horizontal affection. Right? Starts with this. Vertical leads to and affects horizontal. I cannot get those out of order. I cannot have a vertical love and not have a horizontal love. In fact, the Bible tells us That if you claim to have a vertical love and don't have a horizontal love, you are a liar. You don't know him. So the lawyer tested him and he said it in verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Asking for which one was the greatest, Jesus gave the pair that operates as one. Love God, love others. This is a double-sided, single commandment. I want you to see the logical sequence of our love. I just implied it or referred to it in Matthew 22, 39. The second is like it. What Jesus was saying is not, I'm giving you two. He said, I'm giving you Siamese twins. You asked which one is the greatest. I'm going to give you one that comes in the form of two because you cannot separate them. They are unseparatable. You cannot love God and not love others. Therefore, the greatest one commandment is loving God and loving others. It's a logical sequence. And I just referenced 1 John 4.20, but I want you to write that reference down because if anyone in 1 John 4.20, he says, says, I love God and hates his brother. Who's my brother? We're going to get to that. But then if that's the case, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. A person cannot claim to love God and then turn around and hate. Hatred is not in the vernacular or in the heart or in the uh, uh, feelings of a follower of Christ who loves God. You cannot hate and love God at the same time. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. He's not saying that loving the brothers saves you. He is saying the evidence of salvation is a love that is horizontal. True conversion cannot be separated from loving others. You cannot separate the two. There are some things that go with love that are not able to be cut away from it. I think it would be universally absurd for me to say, I love my kids, but I sure hate spending time with them. Right? I just can't stand being around. I love them, but man, I don't ever, I, if I don't ever see them again, I'll be okay. Like You'd be like, bro, you don't love your kids. Like There's something not adding up here, right? Why? 
Because the desire to be around them naturally goes with a love for them. There are some things that are not able to be separated from true love. And we know that you cannot separate true conversion from true love. They are inseparable. In fact, to God, it is outrageous and a lie. I mean, I love it when John just kind of pulls the gun out and shoots us right between the eyes, right? You are a liar if you claim that. My love for other people blossoms then out of the soil of my love for God. It is a logical sequence and it is a universal focus because the question was asked because you probably, if you're not familiar with the story, said, well, who's my neighbor? Like, I love Joe next door. He's great. And Susie across the street, I love her. I like the fact that they bring me uh, cookies every Christmas. I love them. So the question was, well, then who's my neighbor? And then Jesus gives us this epic blockbuster story of the good Samaritan. And he says, a lawyer, uh, a lawyer asks Jesus, again, uh, in Luke chapter 10, to give us clarity on who this is. He says, who's my neighbor there? So this lawyer asking, another lawyer asking Jesus, how can I get eternal life? Jesus says, I'm going to tell you, you got to love God, love your, love, love your neighbor. And so then Jesus shifts the question by telling this story in Luke chapter 10 about the good Samaritan. He says, you don't find your neighbor by looking in the mirror. You don't find your neighbor by looking out the window. Whoever is in need along your path, Jesus explains, is your neighbor. So in this whole story of giving us this example of who the neighbor is, by giving us the story of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, he teaches us not the universal brotherhood of all people, but the universal love that we have for all people that stems for our love, uh, from our love for God. So there's this universal focus of love. It's not just the person who lives in my neighborhood or the person I carpool with or the person that I sit next to on the train or the soccer mom that I pull into the parking lot next to to drop my kids off. Those aren't just the people I love. It's the people that I have throughout the world that I'm able to help. And we in America have a unique opportunity to help people with the resources that God has blessed us with. Therefore, for us, one of the evidences of love for my neighbor or brothers is the support prayerfully, financially, and yes, even physically of the people around the world that we have within our help, uh, ability to help. Then he shows us one last thing about this horizontal love. And I want you to see it, the selfless nature of this love. Matthew twenty two thirty nine: you shall love your neighbor how? As your wife? No, that's not who you love most. As my dog? No, it's not who you love most. Love yourself as you love the bears? Nope, it's not who you love most. Love others as you love the person you love the most on this earth. Love them as you love yourself. The selfless nature. The fact about every one of us here today that I am confident is true is that we love ourselves. Nobody ever has to teach you to love you we worry about ourselves, we feed ourselves, we look out for the good of ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we at least attempt to make ourselves look good, and we try to take care of us first. So Jesus is teaching us to love others in the same way we think about and look out for ourselves. So take the Good Samaritan as the example and the selfless nature of his love that he came. And he wasn't like the robbers who said, what's yours is mine, I'll take it. In the story, he wasn't like the priest and Levite who said, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it. He said, I'm the, I want you to be like the good Samaritan who said, 
what's mine is yours, I'll share it. You see, the, the robbers are the people who have no love. I'm going to take what's yours, and I'm going to get all that I can. The religious people who are safe in their confidence and assurance say what's mine is mine. I don't want to share it. The Samaritan who loves like a neighbor, like Jesus is calling us to, says, I have something, but it is yours, and I will share it with you for your good. And so when a missionary comes and we say, yes, I can't go, but I sure can give, what I'm saying is, what's mine is yours. I'll share it, because through you, it's going to be for the good of my neighbor in Thailand. It's going to be for the good of my neighbor in Costa Rica. It's going to be for the good of my neighbor like you did in Queen Creek. Because in Queen Creek, I have some neighbors. I don't know them. I don't know their names. I don't know their faces. But there are some some men and some women and some children who need the gospel. And I'll get behind you to go get it done. That's selfless love. Selfless love cares. Selfless love serves. Selfless love sacrifices. Selfless love comforts. Selfless love inconveniences self for the good of others. Love described here is agape love, which is not a love that is because the object is lovable. It's a love of the will. It's a love that says, I must and cannot help but love you. So the spirit, the motivation of missions, the effectiveness of your mission, the effectiveness of your mission is motivated, is encouraged. It is fueled by the affections of your heart. You will not live on mission if your heart is not in love with God and in love with others, but you cannot help but live on mission if you are in love with God and in love uh, love with others. And then lastly, and the shortest of all three points is this. Mission is motivated when I have a biblical affection. Look at verse 40. I love this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On these two. Everything in the law and the prophets hangs on and is held up by Michael Green said, with God first and neighbor second, all else in the law is commentary. It's all commentary. Because everything that the Bible is written for is to get us to the point where we love God with our whole being and others as ourselves. Therefore, the reading and studying of the word is not intended to make you a theological fathead, (laughs) but that you would have a compassionately soft heart. So the big idea is simple, right? The effectiveness of my mission is motivated by the affections of my heart. When the affections of the church are vertical, horizontal, and biblical, the mission of the church is powerful and unstoppable. The evidence of this is a total devotion to the God I love and a sacrificial commitment for the people I love. God, I love you most, and I love people as myself. So what is it that you are calling me to do? It's simple yet impossible. The only hope I have of loving God and loving others in the biblical way is because I have, and and, in my past or in my life, have experienced the love that comes from God. In fact, 1 John 4.10 says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. So the hope that we have of having that love comes when I've experienced the regenerating, life-giving love from God. That manifests itself most clearly in the gospel. So 
love of God and love for others is a gospel-centered life because it is in response to the extravagant love that he gave us. That is the characteristic of saved people. Not that we all have the same Bible, not that we all meet in the same room, not even all that we know the same songs, but that we've all experienced this unconditional, overwhelming love from God, and I turn that love back to him and spread that to others. And that spirit indwells us makes this possible. In my church, I have uh, an ending that we always do. We call it learning to live. See, our goal here is not just learn to learn. Learning to learn is pointless. We want to be hearers of the word, doers of the word, not just hearers only. We want to do the work that the word calls us to. So I give you three questions. I want to ask you three questions as we bring this plane down to the runway and we wrap this up. So ask yourself these questions. If you're in the habit of writing them down, I'd ask you to write these down and maybe meditate on this and ask this of you later today as we motivate ourselves into this week of missions. Number one, write this down. What does my love reveal about my relationship with God? Ask yourself that. How does what I love speak to my relationship with God? See, to to claim to know him and not love people only declares that I'm lying. I've deceived myself. God forbid that somebody sit in this room today having deceived themselves and they leave here thinking, I'm okay, because the Bible is clear. This is the line. You don't love God and know him if you don't love others. So how does your love reveal your relationship with God? And friend, if you are here today and you're thinking, you know what, I really don't know that I love people. I think I love other things more than God. Maybe the Spirit is saying, Right there is a revealing fact that you are not saved, and today you might come and trust Christ as your Savior. You might come to know him for the very first time. The whole point of this conversation, remember, was to reveal to the lawyer that he was lost. That was the whole point of the conversation in Matthew. Lawyer, you're lost, and here's how you know it. You don't love God most, and you don't love others first. So in his attempt to justify himself, Jesus revealed that there is still something lacking and that he was indeed lost. So his love revealed something about his relationship with God. That's first question. Number two. Is my love for the Lord greater than my love for anything else? Let's just be honest, can we? Just let's get right down to it. Can you honestly before God say and declare with confidence, I love him most? And can that be backed up by the life you live and the things you sacrifice for him, by the time you give him, by the energy you give him, by the heart you have for him? Can that be, is, that, is that declaration consistent with your actions? Can it also be backed up by your sacrificial, selfless love for others? Because here's the reality is that as sinful creatures, though maybe saved, we have a tendency towards wandering towards idols wandering towards things that dethrone him on the heart of love and replace him with something else. And we start giving our heart, soul, mind, and strength to other things. And I'm pleading with you this week, whether you give any money to missions or not, that today and this week you would decide that there's nothing in my life that I'm going to love more than him. Nothing. The spiritual growth of the Christian is to recognize and remove anything that might rob me of my love for him or compete in my heart for his affection. And then third question that this will lead us into the rest of the week, and this is this. How does my love motivate my mission? 
So what does your love motivate you to do? Let, let me say it maybe another way. What are you doing or willing to do because of your love for him and others? Whatever that is today, right here, we're going to just give a time of prayer. And I'm going to say to you, would you be willing to say, God, I want to love you most. And I want to love others first. Therefore, I'm willing to do whatever it is you call me to do. I will give. I will go. I will pray. I will share. I will sacrifice. And I will serve for you and for others because of this intense love that I have for you and for others. What motivates your love and pushes you towards mission? Love is the willingness to sacrifice for the good of the one loved. If that's the reality of your heart that's pushing you that way, then man, let's, let's do it together, huh? Let's go. Big idea. The effectiveness of my mission is motivated by the affections of my heart. Where's your affections? Father, today, we recognize that the thing in question here is not your love for us. That never changes. It is abundant. It overflows. And it's overwhelming. But how quick we are to love other things first and most. And I pray that today as we start launching into Missions Week and Missions Conference. That we would be reminded of, challenged, inspired, pushed toward. Even making decisions that you will be the focus of our love. That will be natural and easy to sacrifice for the good of others. May that be our heart. And if there's somebody in this room today that does not know Christ, they've never come to meet that love, that today they would come to know Christ as their Savior and their life would be transformed. Bless this time, please.